You know, we sing to the praise and glory of God, and yet the scriptures in two different places command us to speak to one another with songs and hymns and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so this morning, I just want to let you know that you spoke to me. I appreciate the singing this morning. It was an encouragement to me to hear the brothers and sisters raising up the praises of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. Last week, we took a look at Paul's sermon in Athens, his sermon on what is sometimes referred to as Mars Hill or the Areopagus. We took a look at how the eloquence and the sophistication of that sermon did not necessarily produce results. And in fact, we saw that despite the eloquence, despite the worldly wisdom he employed, nothing seems to have come or very little seems to have come of his work in Athens. And we saw that that he himself, when he reflected on his work in Athens, in his opening to the letter to the Corinthians, as we read this morning, that he himself uh, judged it to have been uh, an unwise path to follow. That eloquence is not what brings people in to the family of God. Rather, that is a work of the Holy Spirit and not a function of our eloquence. Eloquence does not translate to ministerial success. And because I am not a particularly eloquent speaker, that must mean I'm highly successful, right? (laughs) Is that how that goes? Is that the equation? You know, it's funny, we pastors, and I'm going to guess everybody, but I know for certain that among pastors, it's extremely common that we will take our circumstances and twist them to be either an affirmation or, or an affront to our ministry. We will do things like this, you know, everything is going wrong, everything is against me, everything I try fails, nothing seems to be working, everybody is talking behind my back, I must be in the wrong business. And strangely enough, there are other pastors, or the same pastor on another day, will take exactly that same set of circumstances and decide, I must be doing a great job. All those negative things, that's the sign of Satan attacking me because because I'm so effective for God. And then, of course, pastors will look at the opposite side of circumstances. When everything is going swimmingly, Every ministry we've launched has been successful. Everybody loves me. We're all in harmony. Everything's going great. Clearly, that is the sign of God's blessing on my ministry. The fourth, there is a fourth permutation, if you figured it out already. Things are going well, but I'm going to quit. That one never seems to happen. I never hear pastors say that. <laughs> Things are going to go going well, so therefore I'm going to quit. I never hear that one. But the others we see, and yet we've got to be reminded if we've been going through the book of Acts, that we have seen all of those circumstances with none of those conclusions. With regard to uh, things going badly, we're going to see this morning in our text that trouble is going to come upon Paul and he's going to be told to stay the course. That difficulty is not a sign to abandon the work. 
And of course, we've seen in the book of Acts where there was opposition and it was a sign to abandon what you were doing. Peter took the wrong stance with regard to how Gentiles should be brought into the church. And he was opposed on that issue. Now, should Peter have said, well, people are opposing my position. That's proof that that Satan's out to get me and I'm doing the right thing. Well, no. He was in the wrong. So, just because there is opposition... We cannot conclude either of those things, at least not based on the examples we have in the book of Acts. We cannot conclude that we are on the right path, nor can we conclude that we're necessarily on the wrong path. And of course, when things are going well, when there's very little opposition, well, that's what we saw last week. Almost no opposition to Paul's preaching in Athens. Oh, a few scoffed at him. They rolled their eyes, clucked their tongues, and walked away. But there's no uprising. He's not dragged to the city limits and stoned. He's not taken before the courts. He's not driven out of town. He meets with almost zero opposition in Athens. And yet all the biblical and historical evidence suggests that what happened in Athens did not produce a sustainable church. We cannot look at our circumstances and draw conclusions. In fact, one of the things we've got to be reminded of is that the only judge of what is right or wrong, the only uh, 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 infallible rule for faith and for practice is the Word of God. In God's grace to me, that is exactly one of the things we're going to be addressing in our Sunday school class this morning as we consider the Westminster Confession of Faith. And yes, that's a plug for Sunday school, And yes, it's a shameless plug. Why would I be ashamed of our Sunday school? (laughs) Absolutely be a part of it and learn more about this this morning. There is danger in trying to look at the book of Acts and read from it uh, conclusions about how we ought to do things today. And there is danger from looking at our circumstances and trying to read them as what we ought to decide and conclude moving forward. But rather, we have got to learn the, the, how to understand the Holy Spirit speaking to us through his word. And so let's hear now the word of God so that we will better understand how the Spirit speaks to us. Acts 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. 
But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio, uh, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray and ask his guidance and understanding it. Lord, we do seek your will through your word this morning, your message to us through your Holy Spirit. So let my words be in accord with your heart for us. And let us hear what you have to say so that we will understand what you have done for us and ask of us. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Christ crucified for Corinth. Christ crucified for Corinth. That really is the, 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 the boiled down message. We, we, we see a glimpse of this in Luke's account here. We see a, a more full accounting of this in our New Testament reading from the first epistle to the Corinthians. But we, we see that as the key message. That contrary to what he did in Athens... Uh, 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 Paul comes to Corinth and simply tries to persuade, reasons with them, and tries to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. The one from Nazareth was the promised one. We're going to see how God uh, uh, makes that happen, uh, uh, opens the door for that through the provision that God gives, through the opposition that is raised up against Paul, and through the protection that, that the Holy Spirit provides. Through the provision, the opposition, and the protection, we're going to see God at work in the ministry of Paul in Corinth, proclaiming Christ crucified for Corinth. So the first thing we see there in the opening verses, uh, uh, Paul meets a, a, a man and his wife named Aquila and Priscilla. The uh, a woman is of particular, particular importance in church history. And in fact, in all the other places where the two of them appear, her name is listed first. This is the only time where he is listed first. Um, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, a couple of important people. They appear to have been uh, converts to Christ who lived in Rome. And I, I say they were already converts. Um, Luke tends to like to note conversions in the book of Acts, and he doesn't note them as being converted here. So we presume that they come. And we're going to see just in, a, in a, a few short verses, about a year and a half worth of time, we're going to see them instructing others in the faith, which implies that they've been in the faith themselves for a while. So they are uh, uh, previous converts who came to know the Lord. And you're saying, well, you know, how do they, if they were in Rome, how do they know the Lord? We'll remind you that one of the things that is recorded way back in Acts chapter 2 is that at Pentecost... There were Jews from all over the world, and Rome is one of the specific places mentioned. So that those Jews at Pentecost who heard the preaching of Peter took the gospel back to Rome with them, and the church began to grow there even before the apostles got there. So we see Priscilla and Aquila. He, they are Jewish Christians, and they are here. Uh, uh, Claudius, the Edict of Claudius came down, we think, in 49 AD to kick Jews out of Rome. Uh, uh, Back then, the, the, the wider world, and 
really largely still within the, 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 the Christian community, we see that uh, the, the Judaism and Christianity haven't yet parted ways. They are viewed as two different versions of the same religion. And so when the Jews were kicked out of, of Rome, Christians were kicked out as well. At least Jewish Christians, Jewish believers were. Paul has a, a lot in common with them. He is a Jewish convert to the Messiah, to Jesus of Nazareth, a follower, and he shares with them a trade. They are both tent makers. And so he joins with them, and we see God providing for him here a place to stay and a way to earn a living. And he does so for a time there as a tent maker. We see there the wording that each Sabbath day he is able to go to the synagogue and to reason with them. It's interesting in verse 4, the, uh, the translation here is a little interesting. And he reasoned to the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. That tried is actually not in the Greek. It just says he persuaded. Um, and I share that with you to say, you know, we're going to see in this text a whole, a whole uh, number of converts. Apparently, he didn't just try to persuade them. He succeeded. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of those who heard, and many come to faith. And so we want to make sure we understand that. And then something interesting happens in verse 5. Do you notice the, the wording is tough in the original language? Every, it, the translation has done a great job of doing what it can with it. Um, it's a little awkward, but the sense is this. Upon the arrival of Silas and Timothy from Macedonia, Paul is now occupied full-time with the Word of God, that he is uh, completely given over to doing the Word of God. There's a shift from tent-making during the week and ministering in uh, his mission work every Sabbath to now full-time mission work. Well, if you flip over to 2 Corinthians 11.9, look at 2 Corinthians 11.9. 2 Corinthians 11.9. Remember, this is a letter to the Corinthians. So he says, And when I, Paul, the writer, when I was with you, the Corinthians, and was in need, I did not burden anyone. Okay, I worked and made my own living. All right, For the brothers who came from Macedonia, that was Silas and Timothy we just read, supplied my need. And there also we see in uh, Philippians 4, 14 and 15, a similar reference. Apparently, uh, um, Silas and Timothy brought money with them. The Thessalonian church, uh, the Macedonian church, took up a collection and they were able to bring it so that Paul could now live off from that gift and minister full time. So in these opening verses, we see God's provision for the ministry of Paul. God providing that it might happen. Now, God certainly provides for people who, who do tremendous evil. The fact that God provides is not proof that what Paul was doing was the right thing. But we have seen in Acts where God will not provide for Paul to go in certain directions. Remember, it's just a few chapters ago that Paul wanted to go into Asia and God would not open that path. He denied that path. It was not provided that he could go to Asia. And so certainly God is at least allowing, if we can't read into the circumstances an absolute stamp of approval here, what we can see is that God in his sovereignty has allowed this situation to continue. 
and to be prolonged. He's set Paul up to be here for a while. He has a trade to fall back on. He has a place to stay, friends with whom to stay, and now money coming from other churches. God is providing for the work of Paul in Corinth. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see the the rise of opposition to Paul's work. Unlike what we saw in Athens, here we see explicit opposition. Verse 6, it says that he shook out his garment. How is it uh, uh, worded there? Uh, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments. Uh, Just kind of the idea of taking his robes and just doing this with him, going, I just want any bit of you that's landed on me, I want it off of me. I'm done with you. I don't want any of your cooties sticking to me. Okay, we're done. We're done. And, and he says then, you know, I'm going to go minister to the Gentiles. We really should not see this as a grand new direction in his overall ministry. For the very next city, he's going to go back to the synagogue and preach to Jews again. Okay, but rather what we should see is this is a statement about what's going to happen in the future in Corinth. In Corinth, he's going to continue to minister, uh, but he's going to do so among the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting what he does. He says, I'm going to go minister to the Gentiles. And what's he do? He moves right next door. He moves right next door to the synagogue. Let's face it. Paul has got a heart for his people. What does he say in other places? I would gladly be cut off from Christ and go to hell myself if it meant the salvation of my brothers, the Jews. He loves the Jews. He loves the lost, and he has a heart for them. Yes, I'm done with you. I'm frustrated with you. But he goes right next door. And we turn right around and we see Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, coming to salvation. So we see this idea that, that uh, their opposition has arisen against Paul. Now, I outline you know, just these the verses 6 through 8. And, and, you know, and, and I say that, uh, uh, that these are a mark of the opposition But really, there's just that one line. They opposed and reviled him. Everything else about this seems to go smoothly. But I think we've got to be able to kind of read between the lines. That verse about Crispus is no small thing. Verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And the next line is even probably more significant. And many of the Corinthians hearing... We really, the word Paul is not in the original text. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now, whether they were hearing Paul preach or they were hearing about the conversion of Crispus is not clear. The point is they were hearing about the work of Jesus Christ. And they came to faith. If we are at all familiar with the ministry of Paul by this point in the book of Acts, we ought to be intelligent readers who know what that means. The Lord is providing for success of the mission and ministry of Paul in Corinth. Key people, important people, and many people are coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that does spell trouble. That's why I say that these verses point to the opposition against Paul. Because we are going to see that this is the ground for which their opposition out of which their opposition is going to spring. Let's consider now the protection that is given to Paul in verses 9 through 17, the protection that is given to Paul. We've, we've considered the, the provision 
through Priscilla and Aquila, through Timothy and Silas bringing money. We've seen the uh, opposition, um, those who revile him, and the uh, many are beginning to follow him, and therefore uh, there's going to be envy, there's going to be jealousy. And now we see the protection. First of all, the promise of protection. Isn't it interesting that on the heels of the conversion of Crispus, the Holy Spirit comes to Paul? Aren't things going well? Didn't you just have a leading convert? Can't you check off another uh, mark on your belt as as a minister of the gospel? Why does he need encouragement and comfort at this point? Because Paul knows what this success means. That there's going to be opposition. And Paul is already beginning to wonder, is it time for me to leave again? As I've done in almost every other city, is it time to get out? Are they going to drag me out and stone me? Do I need to pack my bags tonight? Crispus came to the Lord today, and many others are coming to the Lord because of him and because of the preaching, and they're going to come after me. Do I need to get out? Do I need an escape plan? And we see the Holy Spirit come to him in this vision and make this promise. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You know, verses like this, we, we like to, to take them and apply them to ourselves, but for the moment, let's leave it in the context here. It is what is being said to Paul. Now, why does Paul get this a direct revelation when we don't nowadays? Why is it that we don't benefit from this same intervention and revelation of the Holy Spirit? Well, we've got to remind ourselves that Paul did not have what we have. Paul did not have the complete Word of God. He did not have the full revelation of the Holy Spirit. He did not have what we have. And so the Lord comes to him and offers him special comfort. We've got to be a little careful when we make the same claim. We have the fullness of divine revelation in a way that he did not. And we know that the certain ways of speaking have ceased. We see that even in the opening of the book of Hebrews, that there was a a way that God talked to people in the past that he does not any longer. And so we ought to be a little careful claiming these sorts of things, but yet we see it here given to Paul. And we'll pick that up and talk more about it in Sunday school this morning also. We see the benefit of protection in verse 11. We see his ability to stay put, to hang out for a year and a half. There's some ambiguity, a year and a half total, a year and a half from the point of this vision forward. I'm not exactly sure. It doesn't matter. The point is he gets to stay a long time. By far the longest he has stayed in any one place up until this point. And what are some of the fruits of that? Well, some of the fruits of that are the letters to the church in Thessalonica. First and second Thessalonians were written while he's staying here in Corinth. And so God's grace to Paul of protection that he could stay put in that city was a grace to you and to me today because it allowed us to have the letters of Thessalonians, letters that beautifully remind us of the hope we have of the resurrection and of eternal life with Christ. What a blessing to us through this protection given 
to Paul. We see then the method of the protection in verses 12 through 16. We have the promise of protection in 9 and 10, the, the benefit of protection in verse 11, and then the method of protection in 12 through 16. And it's an interesting one. This man, uh, uh, Gallus, Gallius, comes on the, uh, Gallio, I'll get it right, sorry. Gallio comes on the scene. Gallio is an, actually a well-attested figure in Roman history. He had a famous brother uh, named Seneca. If you, 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 oh, I've heard that name Seneca before. Seneca was an important writer and also a tutor to a famous emperor, Nero. And it was the death of Seneca that many uh, point to as the time that Nero ran it off the rails and became a madman. So that Seneca played an important role. Well, Seneca himself and many others also talk about his lesser uh, known brother, uh, Gallio, this man here. And Gallio was attested as, a, as a, uh, uh, an able, uh, uh, deft uh, um, bureaucrat, a good leader of men, a capable official, a fair man, a kind man. But there is one other note. Gallio, like most of the upper echelon of his society back then, was anti-Semitic. He disliked Jews. The reasons were more religious than anything else. You see, Jews believed in one God and at that an invisible God. And the Romans just could not wrap their brains around that. We've got so many gods and we can see them. You guys are crazy to have one God you can't see. Gallio was anti-Semitic. I point that out to say this, that this is interesting what happens here. When he comes to power in that region, in Achaia, where Corinth is located, the, the Jews who are opposing Paul see this as an opportunity. You know, the Romans like to keep the peace. Whatever you could do to keep the peace. And they thought, well, Gallio, he don't like us. He don't like Jews. So if we take Paul to him and say Paul is causing problems, he won't hesitate to make an example out of a Jew for the sake of peace of the rest of the city. So they jump on the opportunity to go to court, and they drag Paul in. And it's interesting. Like I said, one of the things that is attested about Gallio was that he was a fair-minded leader. And before Paul can even defend himself, Gallio says, I don't want any of this. This doesn't belong in the civil courts. This is a matter, it's interesting how he says it. This is a dispute about names. He's worshiping in the name of Jesus. You guys saying he shouldn't. I don't care whose name you worship in. Just get out of here and go do your thing. Go worship. This is a civil court, and I don't want any part of adjudicating this matter. And Roman law uh, not only allowed him to do that, he's not shirking his duties, he's not derelict in his duties. Roman law actually encouraged the local officials to stay out of these sorts of matters. And so the, the effort on the part of, uh, of the Jews to oppose Paul fails. And then Luke tacks on a really interesting statement. So they storm out of court, they grab Sosthenes, the new ruler of the, of the, of the synagogue. Once Crispus uh, converted to Christianity, he got booted out of the synagogue. Sosthenes gets put in his place. Now Sosthenes has come to believe in the Lord, to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And the Jews are furious. We put you in place to prevent this from happening. We fired Crispus because he followed the teachings of Paul and the ministry of Jesus. And now you're doing the same thing? 
and their anger that they can't get rid of Paul, they grab Sosthenes and they beat him. Right in front of the tribunal, it says. And Gallio does nothing about it. And that is Luke's way of pointing out that Gallio really did not have any particular love for the Jews. And he didn't care that a Jew was getting beaten up. He did not protect Paul out of some enlightened policy. He did not protect Paul out of some uh, 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 a liberal, uh, libertine stance toward Jews. He protected Paul because of divine intervention. That it was by the hand of God that Paul was protected and Sosthenes was not. That it was by the hand of God that Paul was given freedom when Sosthenes suffered a beating. Sosthenes seems to have joined Paul when they leave town later. And uh, if you look at the opening of the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see Sosthenes listed as a co-author of that letter back to the church in Corinth. So we have, we, we see the provision that God makes to Paul and to his ministry. We see the opposition that arises against it. We see how God uh, promises protection and then provides for protection and, and, and the benefits that come out of that protection. And so we ask ourselves this. Where does that leave us? Can we look at this and conclude that, that if we are doing the work of God, we will be protected? We will be given. I mean, we saw in Jeremiah, we saw in our Old Testament reading that God promised to Jeremiah that, that, that I will be with you and I will keep you safe. And No. We must be very careful appropriating these sorts of things and deciding that they apply to us. I said earlier that we cannot look at our circumstances and draw conclusions about what God thinks of what we're doing. But neither can we go to the scriptures and take the verses we like and twist them to be about us. This is not about us. And in fact, it's not even about Paul. It's about the ministry of the word of God to those people in that place at that time. It was so that Christ crucified could be known in Corinth. For it doesn't even extend to the rest of Paul's life. He dies a martyr. He eventually loses his head for the sake of the gospel. This is not a promise of even of protection on Paul. It is the Holy Spirit saying to him, I have a job for you to do today. Where I've put you. Where you are right now. And that is perhaps the lesson we need to recognize and that we need to apply to ourselves. Lord, you have provided for me to be here now. I might not be here tomorrow. The provision may not last. I may lose my job. I may have to move. I may have to pick up stakes. My house might burn down. Who knows? But right now, you've provided for me to be here. What do you want me to do? What is my ministry here? To whom do I need to declare Christ crucified? Not with eloquence, not with sophistication or worldly wisdom, but with simple clarity. You are headed to hell. But Jesus made a way. 
Lord, who do I need to say that to? And give me the boldness to say it. And when there is opposition, when your family members stop inviting you to get together, it's because you keep talking about Jesus. When your coworkers won't have lunch with you anymore because you keep talking about Jesus. We look at that opposition and go, kind of is par for the course when you proclaim the gospel. Jesus himself said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. To turn a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, to turn a son against his father. There will be division. No, you can't look at opposition and conclude that that is proof that you're doing the right thing. But for sure, if you are doing the right thing, there will be opposition. Satan is not going to just let you steal those who are his. Opposition doesn't prove you're doing what's right, but when you are doing what's right, there will be opposition. And finally, there will be protection. Not for your entire life. There wasn't protection for Paul's entire life. But so long as you are doing the work that God has for you to do in his sovereign will, where you are right now, among whom you live, among those whom you live, there will be protection. So long as you are still able to keep going, then you need to keep doing what he's called you to do. Keep gathering to praise and worship him. Keep proclaiming his goodness. Keep hoping in his Savior. Keep rejoicing in the good news of Jesus Christ. And keep letting that rejoicing overflow in such a way that others get tired of hearing about it. That is assured. That your protection will last so long as he has desire for you to do that work. Christ crucified for Corinth. God provided for it. He raised up opposition against it, and then he protected the message. Christ is crucified for Easton, and for Denton, and for St. Michael's, and for all of the other communities around here. He will provide for that message to go forward. And yes, there will be opposition against it, but he will protect his messengers until such time as he has glorified himself through us. Let's proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ with simplicity and clarity, just as Paul did in Corinth, with the hope that we will be protected for as long as Christ sees fit to use us. Let's pray. Lord, we know that there are no promises of of protection in this life, but of difficulty and of, of hardship. And yet we also see that you do provide for your workers to accomplish your work. And though there is opposition against it, you do raise up a hedge of protection for so long as you seek to glorify yourself through them. Lord, let us rejoice in an opportunity to do that here and now. Proclaiming Christ crucified for Talbot County, for the Eastern Shore, and for the world. Let us do that with boldness and clarity out of the rejoicing of the salvation that we enjoy in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.